Welcome to Reading Between the Lines, the People's Friends story podcast in association with The Odd Fellows. Each episode, a few of us from the Friend team, along with some special guests, will delve into our archives to find a story to read, and then we'll all sit down for a wee chat about it. Make yourself a cup of tea, pull up a chair, and come join us. Hello everyone, Uh, my name is Ian and I am the People's Friend Digital Content Editor and joining me just now is Angela, the editor of the People's Friend. Hello Angela. Hello. Um, And we're here to talk to you about Reading Between the Lines, the People's Friend story podcast. This is episode one and we are very excited about the whole thing. Um, we're, We're so glad that you're listening. We thought it would be good to give you a little bit of context. Um, So Angela, the People's Friend has been in print, we are proud to say, for over 150 years. That means there's a lot of stories in the archives that probably haven't seen the light of day for for quite a while. Yeah, we've got so many stories in the archive, haven't we? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Um, And most of them, you're right, have not been seen since they were first published back in the day. So this is a great opportunity to bring them to the attention of a whole new audience and let people see just what treasures we have hiding in the shelves of the archive department. That's right. And there's there's absolutely, as you say, there's there's tons. Um, I When I went looking for some stories for this podcast, um, I was absolutely staggered at the, the number of stories. Obviously, I mean, we publish, oh dear, you'll have to correct me, we publish seven stories? It's seven every issue. It's around 600 a year, 600 new short stories every year. So if you multiply that by um, a weekly issue every week stretching back to 1869 and some of those issues had more than seven stories a week in them there's there's a lot of fiction there to be to be rediscovered that's we're uh, we're certainly hoping that that means 30 years of this podcast <laughs> oh at least um the the archives are obviously i i most people will not have seen them i think we've shared pictures of them in the past on the website and possibly in the magazine but they're it's a it's a cavernous building, um, just rows and rows of shelves of um, mouldering magazines. <laughs> um, some of them are in slightly better nick. Uh, but the exciting thing is obviously being able to go in and to see what the people's friend was like in past eras, and being able to share that with people is kind of why we've decided to launch this podcast. Definitely. Because when we produced all our um, specials for the 150th anniversary in 2019, uh, we spent a lot of time in the archives as a team. And we really did discover so many great stories. We could only use a fraction of them in those magazines that we produced then. So this is a great way to bring them to a new audience. And we get to have a chat about them as well. Uh, we get, we get to, to talk about them too. Yeah, gather some of the team together and uh, and have a chat. And it's not always the case that this chat is entirely positive. Um, I, I don't want to. I don't want to give anything away or put anybody off. But there's certainly some of the stories that we've found that we might not publish in the magazine these days for for a variety of reasons. There are plenty of stories that we've discovered that we would be very happy to publish in the magazine again. But the the conversations can occasionally take an unexpected turn. Uh, which is is quite a pleasing thing to see, actually, and and hopefully quite a good thing to listen to as well. Well, it should certainly make for an interesting discussion, but I think it just shows, doesn't it, that reading tastes have changed over the years. Um, Fashions come and go. Also, themes come and go. You know, there are themes that were 
very relevant back in the Victorian people's friend that are not relevant now and vice versa. So it is fascinating to see how some stories have stood the test of time and how some have not. Um, there are some that would be just as fresh today and others that really are dated now to a particular era, but at the time would have been much enjoyed by the readers. Absolutely. Um, we we have a good one in this episode we're about to go into, but um, you won't be joining us for this episode. Uh, you will be making much heralded guest appearances um, in the podcast over over the, the run, um, but not today. We'd, we'd like to keep you as our secret weapon <laughs> to unleash you upon the listeners. Oh dear, poor listeners, poor listeners. But no, I'm not appearing today, but I am very much looking forward to it. And I know that you do have other members of the team who have been really excited to take part in these podcasts and uh, have very much enjoyed hearing um, all these stories brought to life, which is it's great experience. Well, thanks very much, Angela. Um, we're looking forward to having you with us in future podcasts. But Turning to today's episode, um, we're going to be hearing the story A Night Among Robbers, An American Adventure, which was first published in The People's Friend in 1871. Um, it's going to be read for us by People's Friend Features Editor Alex Corlett, and then later on Alex will be joining myself and Mary from the Features team and David from the DC Thompson Archive for a little chat about it. It was the last night of my bachelor life, and, as Archie Burton insisted I was bound to die the same, I had consented to spend it with him instead, to use Archie's expression of moping at home by way of foretaste of my future state. I was to meet my friend at half past nine at his lodgings. It was already a quarter to nine, and in order to keep my appointments, I was hurrying by way of a shortcut along a dimly lighted, unfrequented street into which a number of dark alleys opened. Into one of these, I felt myself suddenly dragged by a number of violent hands, which had seized me from behind in passing. And before I had time to make any outcry or offer the slightest resistance, I was securely bound, gagged and blindfolded, and completely at the mercy of my unknown assailants. The least noise or disturbance will be at the cost of your life, was the admonition I received, whispered into one ear, and emphasised by the click of a pistol at the other and then I was hurried swiftly forward and thrust into a carriage between two of my captors, while others followed. Immediately we set forward. How far we went, how many turns we took, or where we stopped, of course I could not tell. I was only sensible of time and motion. At last we ceased to move. I was assisted out and led, guarded as before, several paces over what I judged to be a rough pavement, when a door opened and closed, and then I was made to ascend a narrow stairway after which I was forced into a seat and released from the hands of my conductors. The gag was removed after a repetition of the previous admonition, but I was still left bound and blindfolded. You are doubtless anxious to learn the cause of a proceeding which, it is but natural to suppose, has occasioned you some surprise, continued the same voice in which the admonition had been given. I felt, if an explanation was forthcoming, it would be made without my asking, and so said nothing. You have a fraction over $10,000 to your credit in a national bank, the voice resumed. I thought that was none of the voice's business, but didn't say as much. If you will fill up a cheque to bearer, the voice went on, for $10,000, we won't stickle for the odd fraction, and the messenger sent to present it returns in safety with the money, 
you shall tomorrow night be conducted in the same manner you were brought here to the place at which we found you and there left unmolested. I still remained silent. If you refuse, you die, the voice added, and the tone, it was evident, was not one of idle menace. And you have half an hour to decide, it said, after which there was profound quiet. I was not prepared to choose immediately. The sum I had in bank composed my all. I had toiled for it with an object in view to which life itself was secondary. I had long loved Helen Marcy, and though she would willingly have shared my poverty in the days when I had nothing else to offer, I could not but acquiesce in the wisdom of her father's refusal to sanction a union so improvident. But now that I had won a moderate competence, or at least a beginning that ensured one, he had given the long-wished-for consent, and the morrow was the day fixed to crown my happiness. The loss of what I had so hardly earned I could have borne without serious regret, for I was young and sanguine, but the long delay it involved, if not the final postponement of my hopes, fairly made my heart sink. But then came the reflection, if I died here, my fate would probably never be known. My disappearance too would be liable to misconstruction. It may be suspected that I repented of my engagement at the last moment and jilted Helen Marcy on the day appointed for her wedding. That thought determined me. I have decided, I said. I will comply with your demand. After a brief interval, my arms were unbound and the bandage removed from my eyes. It was some moments before I could distinguish objects. I then found myself in a mean apartment whose only furniture consisted of a deal table and a few rickety chairs, on one of which I was seated in the midst of five men closely masked. A dim lamp flickered on the table, on which were also pen, ink and a blank cheque properly stamped. Without waiting to be asked, I drew forward my chair and took up the pen. A thought flashed upon me. Supposing I disguised my hand, will not the cheque be deemed a forgery? and the man who presents it arrested, and thus a clue be afforded which may lead to my release? But I found I was reckoning without my host. Be sure to write in your natural hand, for if aught befalls the messenger, or prevents his safe return within an hour after his departure, your life shall pay the forfeit. I filled up the cheque in my usual hand, affixing my ordinary signature, not forgetting to cancel the stamp. My eyes were again bandaged, and my arms pinioned as before. At length I heard someone go out. Doubtless it was the messenger. The echo of the messenger's departing footsteps seemed hardly to have died away when the stillness was broken by that voice in which it seemed impossible for any good thing to be uttered. The time is almost up, it said, addressing I knew not whom. Get your knife ready, for we dare not risk a pistol shot here. A short pause ensued when someone approached and laid a hand upon my arm. I could not see, but I felt that the weapon was raised with which the fatal blow was to be dealt. The very uncertainty as to when and where it was to fall rendered it impossible to nerve myself against it. But hark, somebody was hurrying up the steps. The door was flung right open and a voice exclaimed, not the same one this time, I have the money. The hand was withdrawn from my arm. Thank God, I thought. I am saved. The messenger had returned unharmed. But hark again. There was a rapid shuffling of other footsteps on the stairway. My heart leapt at the sound. Could it be friends at last? Fire on the first man that raises a finger, shouted a full manly voice. 
as its owner, in company with I could not tell how many others, rushed into the room. In a trice, my eyes were uncovered and my arms set free. It was Archie Burton that did it, while my foe stood cowering before the levelled revolvers of half a dozen policemen. How in the world did you find me, Archie? I cried, grasping his hand in a transport of joy. By the merest of all chances, he said. I was so surprised at your failure to meet me last night that I called at your lodgings this morning to ascertain the reason when, to my still greater astonishment, learned you had not been there since yesterday evening. I had no time to look for you, however, as I had to be at the bank betimes. I am a clerk at the National, you know. I happened to be passing behind the paying teller when your cheque was presented. Its amount, almost your entire balance, the unprepossessing appearance of the man who presented it, and your own mysterious disappearance, all combined to make me suspect something wrong. Without imparting my suspicions to anyone, I determined to follow the stranger at a cautious distance, which I did, picking up a few blue coats by the way. And as Mr. Merriman says at the circus, here we are. God bless you, Archie, I said. And Helen said so too, when he came to the wedding that evening. Of course, I recovered my money, and the five robbers are now in prison, awaiting their trial. Barbara's story. Grandmother of four, Barbara Spencer, from Bourne in Lincolnshire, was forced to retire earlier than planned thanks to an accident at work. At first she was worried about how she would fill her days. Unlike her husband, Barbara wasn't convinced she could be happy just pottering about in their house. So when someone recommended becoming a member of Friendship Society, the Odd Fellows, she didn't think there was anything for her to lose. She picked up the phone and gave them a ring. Now, she says, every day is like a holiday. And with a packed social schedule to look forward to, and the support of friends from her local Odd Fellows branch, she wishes she'd retired sooner. If you're like Barbara, and looking to make new friends or find new activities, visit oddfellows.co.uk or call 0800 028 1810 today for a free information pack. A wide range of online events is waiting for you to enjoy from the comfort of your own home. Now, let me top up my tea, grab some of my friends, and we'll have that wee chat about the story you've just heard. That was A Night Among Robbers, an American Adventure, um, which had no attributed author, but it did have an attributed narrator. Uh, that was Features Editor Alex, who joins me now. Hello, Alex. Hello, Ian. Um, alongside Mary from the Features team. Hello, Mary. Hello. And also um, DC Thompson Archive Manager, David Powell. Hello, David. Hi there. Um, so we're going to have a chat about that um, nice little story. I'm sure we have no objections to it at all. <laughs> <laughs> What an auspicious way to start a podcast about a story. Um, okay, so Alex, as the narrator, I'm going to come to you first. What were your general impressions? Um, it was completely mad. <laughs> it was completely mad. I, it, was, it was all over the shop. It starts with the most bizarre premise and it ends with the least credible uh, wrap-up that I've probably ever come across in a story. But I, I actually really enjoyed it, I'll be honest. Um, it was like some sort of mad Frank Capra-esque screwball comedy from the 40s. I could, I would love to have heard um, Kerry Grant reading that. 
I'm just sorry that it was me rather than Catherine <laughs> Hepburn or something like that. Oh, it's a meet my friend at half past nine. It's just, it's just, oh, it's fabulous. It's just, uh, it, it bounces along. Um, I remember when we were reading it, we were chatting about how we should feel, we feel like it should have a bouncy tone to it. It has a bit of a, you know, you think Archie and uh, and the main and the protagonist were are kind of well-to-do young gents, sort of cads and bounders, um, a bit Brideshead revisited and stuff. And there was a real... I don't know, there was kind of a playfulness to it that I quite enjoyed. Um, it was, it lost, it really started to lose, <laughs> it really started to lose credibility with the thieves starting to speak, unfortunately. And why Why is that? What is there about the language in this story that made you believe, or or made you uh, not believe that these were thieves? I, 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 the, 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 the I, didn't, I didn't feel particularly threatened by these particularly <laughs> verbose thieves. I think, let me check, is the first line not, um, the least noise or disturbance will be at the cost of your life, was the admonition I received. And this, and again, this is where it starts to get really hard to read because there is one, this is their first, uh, I believe this is their first utterance to him the least noise or disturbance will be at the cost of your life, was the admonition I received, comma, whispered into one ear, comma, and emphasized, deep breath there, by the click of a pistol at the other, comma, and then I was hurried swiftly forward, comma, and thrust into a carriage between two of my captors, comma, while others followed. I got lost in the middle of that sentence like a tourist in London. I had no idea which way I was going. I had no idea where to put the next dress. Um, and I believe I had to take a 30 second uh, break just to gather my head, um, uh, which kind of you and Chris kind of helped me to uh, help me to do. I had to go away for a little second, quiet room, and figure out where I was going. But the uh, just the the speech, uh, and it gets worse from the captors. But I think we'll all agree that the speech isn't uh, doesn't reek of threat uh, or of um, any sense of urgency. There's one point where they say you have half an hour to decide. <laughs> I, I, I'm and I'm and I'm I'm surmising, I'm surmising there, and I'm being very generous to them because they actually take because the guys probably lost 15 minutes. <laughs> just by the guy explaining what you've got to do um and he's probably furious like, give me 30 minutes but you take 50 minutes to explain what i've got to do this is really frustrating um yeah so yeah i think that's to me that's where it falls down the speech from the robbers or the kidnappers they did seem rather polite i will admit uh, in a victorian sense <laughs> Gentlemen robbers. Yeah, it's just like, it's like being kidnapped by Russell Brand or something. It's like, <laughs> thing, where do I recognize this kind of tone of speech from? And the thing that struck me about it is just like, what's American about this? This, I'm, I'm pretty sure Americans don't speak like this. And I know that obviously <laughs> you know, this is uh, this is 18, uh, 1872, this was published, I think, wasn't it? So obviously, you know, it's pre-cinema. It's, you know, most people's um, experience of America is going to be very you know, isn't going to be much. So, you know, they might all speak like Victorian educated gentlemen. Um, but, you know, it's, it's probably not most of the kind of the criminals that you would know in the UK at that period. <laughs> I like the idea that they all speak like Cary Grant. I'd quite like, I think, Alex, we're going to, we're going to end this episode later on. I'm just going to get you to read a line in the voice of Cary Grant. I was trying, but I, I'd sort of slipped into Catherine Hepburn and, and it all just started to go horribly wrong. I think, I think there's some merit to a discussion about which was the least... Uh, plausible line uh, in there. I think uh, a few paragraphs further down, we come to one that was one of my particular favorites, um, which is basically, uh, not that I need to explain it to everybody because you'll understand once I've said it, but basically the premise is the guy is saying, I bet you're wondering why you're here, right? Is what he's saying. But instead, 
<laughs> Instead, he says, you are doubtless anxious to learn the cause of a proceeding which, it is but natural to suppose, has occasioned you some surprise. <laughs> I had to read that three times to understand what the hell he was going on about. <laughs> did, you repeat, did you repeat the question? <laughs> I was trying to think, like, if you're tied to a chair and you're in a high-stress situation, you don't know what's going on, and somebody says that at you, I think I'd just go like, nah, mate, I've given up, sorry. <laughs> Take what you want. <laughs> I'd really like for his response to have been something along the lines of, you are correct, sir, this has occasioned me some surprise. Please continue. <laughs> <laughs> I did really like it, but I, I think it felt almost kind of like a children's story, like you're saying in terms of the speech and things. Like it's, it's a bit intense for a children's story, but it was just the way it was kind of a little bit cringy, the the kind of the speech and just the way that the situation unfolds. Like it was it was actually really good. I really enjoyed it. But I just did think, yeah, it was quite kind of didn't really have that complexity to it that you might you might expect. But I suppose I think the thing I liked about it was that despite the fact that the ending is really unbelievable um a lot does happen quite quickly like mm. they managed to put together quite a nice little story and not that huge a number of words but i suppose that does the ending definitely pays the price for that <laughs> because it just seems totally <laughs> unrealistic i um, had yeah i had to go back and just look at the timeline again and see what's going on because he goes out at half past nine <laughs> presumably at yeah. night <laughs> the night before his wedding to meet his pal <laughs> And then he's kidnapped. And then all of a sudden, you know, between being kidnapped and the person going off to the bank, which presumably doesn't open till nine o'clock the next day. I don't know. <laughs> you, know um, you know, it's just like, hold on, is, it, is he asleep? Is, it not, is he knocked out? I, don't, it, I, I got really confused as to where it was. And I thought, hold on, it, we, we just seem to have jumped a couple of hours. Without. I think clearly they just spent the night explaining where, exactly what it is, the situation is, <laughs> what he's going to do. He probably, he probably passed out from trying to understand what they were saying, just yeah. like, oh god I'm too tired for this <laughs> either that or it was 9.30 in the morning and they just intended to have an all day session the day before his wedding <laughs> it, could, it could have been but that is like even so <laughs> I mean I did, my, my first thought was when he was kidnapped and I was reading this for the first time was like oh it's a stag do it's a prank that's what I thought that's yeah. what I thought as well. <laughs> and then and and just like this is how sad I am I went away and just did a bit of research on stag do's because I wasn't 100% sure <laughs> uh, uh. <laughs> how modern a thing they are because i could imagine this is like a you know a, an early 2000s you know like kind of stag do is like oh let's kidnap him and have some fun um <laughs> and actually stag do's date back they date back to ancient greece but the the kind of the modern stag do as we know it is really a kind of 1980s thing and this would have been a bachelor party if it was american anyway which is a much more formal event with your dad so it's like so it's not a stag do and people wouldn't have seen that as a potential when they were reading this for the first time in contemporary, they wouldn't have seen it that way. They'd have just yeah. seen it as a, oh, he's been kidnapped the night yeah. before his wedding. So this has given you an idea for the next, if you're the best man of <laughs> a future wedding. I've only been a stag, I've, I've only been a best man once, and um, this is not what I would do. <laughs> I think it would have been my, my kind of stag nights kind of involve more cocktails and <laughs> something much more refined and a bit less potentially illegal. Well, you know, <laughs> that happens later on in the evening. <laughs> I think there's an element of, you have, to, you have to wind it back. I think if you're thinking of, um, I mean, obviously we're framing it in modern terms where, there, where yeah. there's just no sense of threat to this language at all. But even if, even I mean, joking aside, even if you go back to like, you imagine Cary Grant and you imagine the language, even back then in North like North by Northwest and stuff like that, it is it is already a little bit more it's already getting a little bit more languagey. Um I just made up a word. And uh <laughs> if you go back even further, you think back to 
Oh, gee. I mean, one the, the example that springs to my mind, I don't know why, because I've seen it recently, but the Gangs of New York, uh, the Martin Scorsese film, when you think of Daniel Day-Lewis's character in that, you can actually imagine that character taking the time to construct these elaborate sentences before he does something horrible. Well, Daniel Day-Lewis can do anything. Yes, he can. You see it in Bond films as well. <laughs> <laughs> See, in exactly. Bond films, it's like, I'll just explain how I'm going to kill you in really explicit ways. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's just and this blowfell, isn't it? The precedent blowfell. Yeah. It's taking far too long to explain exactly what's going to happen. Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah it, does, it did kind of rob it of any sense of threat, but maybe I'm being just being unkind to the um, generational gap in the language and it's just kind of lost in translation. But uh, but it was good fun. I mean, Well, yeah, perhaps fun. not. I mean, threat might not have been its purpose no because it was as as we said it's got kind of a light bouncy sort of tone to it yeah um yeah. so yeah. and the fact that it kind of resolves itself without anybody really doing anything uh, <laughs> suggests that really threat wasn't what they were aiming for it was kind of like a just a nice little thing that they had uh, to to make you feel better presumably they could publish this right after like a terrible story uh, and then follow it with a people's friend biscuit advert or something <laughs> would you like to know better. exactly would you like to know exactly what it was follow it followed yes i would um a, 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 a one page article on good looks that absolutely <laughs> that's devastating to my argument um and yeah i mean put it into its context and i think that possibly just answer some of the questions as to why this story is the way that it is um it appears about five pages into the the people's friend for this issue um which has already been taken up by a three-page serial story mm. um then a poem then an article on the metaphorical use of the word taste which ran for two pages <laughs> another poem and then this one page article on good looks and then they had a column and a half to fill and i think they just rammed this in because it was lying around yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think it's probably something they've had like sat in a drawer somewhere for <laughs> just in case yeah. um was the impression that i kind of got with it um my other thought on that conversely was it is potentially deliberate at this point the people's friend is what three years old it's its second year of being a weekly paper rather than a monthly paper and um it is aimed at the family and the whole family is supposed to be able to enjoy it and i wondered if this was something that was maybe for a member of the family to read out to the kids by the fireplace or it was a it was almost like an entertainment for the for a different readership than the ones that would read um, on good looks, for example. Oh, my days, though. I, I mean, I, I, I pity the fool that's got to read this to their family. I'm trying to imagine a Dundee jute worker reading this out to the family. Yeah, maybe maybe I'm kind of thinking of it too academically in that sense. But um, yeah, it did feel like a piece of fluff around, a, a piece of entertaining fluff around um, some other quite more serious stuff going on. Yeah, I mean, when we talk, if you talk about it in terms of um, is it is it the sort of thing we would publish today? I think there's a couple of there's a couple of points that kind of spring to my mind. There is one is the there's just um, maybe maybe it's the same point. There's just too much there's too much exposition in the dialogue. There's like I mean, it's a classic rule I think really with modern fiction, and I don't know if it is just the kind of oh, modern, I love that. Um, there's the bit at the end where he says, "I'm a clerk at the National," you know, it's yes. just like ram it in just to kind of it's like <laughs> it's Basil exposition. Uh, it's really, and it's just, what's the, I mean, the rule, what's the rule that we, a lot of writers go by now is to show, but don't tell. Um, yeah. And this is like, uh, tell, 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 and then uh, don't really bother showing. <laughs> I think, I don't know. I think you're being a bit harsh there. I think this, Sorry. Yeah, so you should be, apart from uh, the fact that it's a, unnecessarily verbose, 
Uh, I think this would probably... It has the same sort of feeling as stories that might turn up in the magazine today because there isn't really any threat. No. Something that struck me about it as well is that it's um, from like a male perspective and it all feels quite male because he's talking about going on his stag do and all of this and there's no women, I don't think, in it at all. Mm. Um, which obviously now we do have stories that are from the perspective of male characters, but it's definitely less common and it would usually be, there would be female characters present um and i don't know just the whole feeling of it is quite male like it's quite kind of almost feels like it's trying to be like a little action packed mm. story which is quite different like you say it seems like it would be aimed at another member of the family like maybe the kids um because it doesn't really feel like definitely doesn't feel like what we would have today in terms of it's yeah it just felt very male to me it is a bit bloke how american did yeah you <laughs> mm. I, I was thinking it's like how american is this because the only thing that i picked out was about two cultural references one to mr merriman at the circus the word of the use dollar and everything else could have just been london or manchester or anybody anywhere else in the uk to me it was yeah, yeah. I, I was trying to figure out what, why did they subtitle it an american adventure try and make it more exciting because <laughs> i don't think using the word dollar is enough yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I'd love to kind of, I'd love to do a bit of linguistic anthropology, basically, and see whether at, at that point, the English language didn't really differ that much on either side of the pond. And uh, maybe the change, maybe the changes came later, and you wouldn't expect, you know, mm. you wouldn't expect that in the 30s, 40s or 50s. But maybe back in those days, there really wasn't that big a disparity between English English and American English. I'm not sure. But yeah, yeah I mean, you I, I routinely forget that every time I was reading it. Um, Every time, you know, when we come to talk about it, I completely forget that it is an American story. We should have had you doing an American accent. Never mind, It did make me wonder, actually, something that you were just saying there, David, that um, it was kind of sandwiched into the end of a couple of columns after some other stuff. Um, it's possible then that it's maybe been edited to fit that space. I, mm, mm -hmm, mm. Mm. I, feel, I feel that there's a... I feel there's a, a bit of clumsy editing in that in that last three or four paragraphs. Yeah, yeah I mean, <laughs> when you see it on a when you see it laid out on the page, um, I've got the copy in front of me here. Um, the last sentence of uh, "Of course, I recovered my money, and the five robbers are now in prison awaiting their trial." That really does look, even in the publication, like it's been tacked on at the end to fill up, mm. you know, uh, two lines at eight point, so that there's not a gap. It, it really feels like it's just been added on at the end. Um, I mean, in some ways, you, you don't need that last line. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, good point. Mm. The end to me, it felt like, um, you know, the end of an episode of Scooby-Doo when they pull the mask off the bad guy <laughs> and then it all just comes together in this kind of <laughs> unrealistic way. Everything's just resolved really nicely and then that's that. It kind of felt like that. Like, it was just a bit too... Like you say, it was too kind of obvious. Like they didn't need that extra detail at the end. It was just a bit too much. They could have just left. It was the old man who ran the amusement arcade. <laughs> yeah, but I think it also comes back to the um, it comes back to the People's Friends editorial policy at the time, which you know this is third year of the People's Friend, and it um, the first ever edition of the People's Friend does have that thing that there's nothing here that's going to corrupt anybody. Mm. Um, it's for all the family to read, and. Um, there was this underlying thing from the Leng Publishing House, who were publishing The People's Friend at the time, John Leng and Co. in Dundee. People have to be seen to suffer for their crime. Um, people have to, you know, you, you can't get away with something. And that last line is just almost feels like someone's whacked a moral in to fill the space. Mm. It's just like, you know, and by the way, the baddies got their comeuppance. Um, <laughs> 
So it, it does feel in some ways that whether it's whether it's bowing to editorial policy. Mm. Um, I also wonder if the the fact that this is so crammed into a space and looks like it's had a hatchet edit job, whether that's why it's anonymous, is that they couldn't actually fit in the initials that they would often put at the end of the article to say mm. who wrote it. I was going to ask that actually, why you know, why there are some stories, because this isn't the only one. When I was kind of looking through the archives to find stories for this podcast and for our fiction newsletter, there are quite a few who don't have authors attributed to them. Um, and I wondered whether you knew if there was a reason for that. No, um, I've not come across anything. I can only surmise is that it's probably either an in-house staff member that's written it um, and therefore they don't put their names to it because they tend to just stay anonymous. And David Pay, who was editor at this time, he did have some stories published in The People's Friend of his own work, but they were never under his name, I don't think. Um, and they were quite often anonymous, I think. So part of me wondered if it was it's something like that or whether it was just there's just not enough room to put it in. But I did I flicked through the rest of this volume trying to see in the whole over 1872 whether there was much in the way of an anonymous stuff. And it's it's relatively rare to be anonymous. It's not unusual, but it's 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 rare. So I don't know. I suspect it's a staffer who or a junior member of staff and it's their first attempt at a story. Well, that's a scathing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think it's just like chaining them up. Um but that's that's just me uh, and my interpretation of it. But can I just can I just turn this back on Ian then for a second briefly because um, I've I've been a little bit scathing. David's been a little bit scathing. Um, Mary's had some points. Uh, but Ian, you've defended the story. Do you feel why? <laughs> why? 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 Or why? Um, it's good fun, I, but is there something special about it that you feel works? Um, I just think it's kind of good fun. Actually, um, I remember when I was a lad reading. Um, they're called buildings. You're going to have to forgive me because German pronunciation is worse than my English pronunciation. Buildings roman. They're they're sort of little romantic kind of vignettes. Uh, a, a character will typically wander through the woods and have quite a nice time, and then that'll be the end. Uh, a lot of the time, if you're reading them as a kind of modern fiction reader, you'll go through them thinking, well, what was the point in that? But kind of the point of it was that nothing was happening. People were just having quite a nice time. And <laughs> quite a lot of the time they would focus on sort of natural environments. So I don't think that's what this is. Mm. This isn't sort of someone wandering through the woods discovering something about themselves. But I think just as a, a piece of, as David said, I think entertaining fluff, mm. I think it works quite well. Mm. Um, and when, when you get to the, the more ridiculous bits like the, the thief that speaks like Ian McKellen, um, or the fact that everything resolves itself around his head without him having to do anything. I, I found that really funny. I wasn't sort of frustrated by it. By the time I got to it, I just sort of thought, well, of course, everything resolved itself. Um, so I came away from it feeling quite quite pleased at having read it. Um, and I think that that might be, I, I was sort of hoping that that might have been the purpose behind it rather than just filling up space. Um, that maybe it's just to, to make people smile. Why don't you like to smile? <laughs> I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not. I'm not. I'm happy that nothing happened to the guy, but there's no. There's no sense of uh, for me. There's no sense of relief because there's no palpable sense of threat, um, and that's what. That's why it doesn't quite work for me. Um, it needs a bit more. It needs. To, I don't know. It needs to be a bit more ominous for me to feel. Oh, thank goodness! Thank goodness, Archie 
happened to be in the exact bank at the exact time for <laughs> the guy. <laughs> Thank goodness for Archie. What a, what a jolly good bean he is. Um, but the I guess the the implausibility of that would have been a bit more <sighs> swallowable had uh, had it not been um, had the threat not been a bit weak. I think through the story, but it was it was fluff. It was fun. I can I can see if, if its position was at the back. I can see. You've got five minutes, you know, you're on the <laughs> you're on the train or um you need a quick read while you're blue. <laughs> <laughs> you well, I kind of I kind of go back a little bit to kind of what I said about um kind of the Leng ideas of um publishing about um it being about education as much as um um lit, you know literature and that well this I don't think we, I think we can safely say this is not literature. Um, um, it does. There, there are some moralistic elements to it, which to me feel quite Leng and of the time. Um, so the fact that when he says, you know, this might be, you know, if, you know, he's debating whether or not to hand the money over, and he goes, well, you know, his wife would love. He knows that his wife would love him if he was poor. Even though he's worked really hard to save this money, he'll still have his wife, and that's more important than the cash, mm. which is kind of one of those when most of the people who are reading this at the time are unlikely to have much money in the bank, certainly not $10,000 or £10,000. They're more likely to kind of be scraping the money together to buy the magazine. So there's that. And then, you know, and then the final moral line is just really, you know, you get your comeuppance. So I think it's it's kind of, it, it, it fits the bill for the kind of the editorial policy of the time, I think. But I, st- I, I, st- I have massive problems with using the word hark twice in succession really closely within within the space of three lines i think it is it just feels like oh and hark here's another kind of way of getting out and hark here's another way of getting out of this problem all your problems can be solved if you appropriately hark or yes. if you hark at the appropriate times <laughs> something else as well that um stuck out i thought was well he seems like quite a likable guy maybe not a very believable character but when he's thinking about whether he's going to give them the money or if he lets them kill him the only thing he seems to be worried about is that if he dies, his wife or his bride-to-be might not realize what's happened and just think he's run off and he would be disappointed if he'd let her down, which I thought was quite sweet. But the first thing he thought of was that he was worried people might think he'd just run off rather than being kind of stressed about the fact that they were going to kill him. So it was quite nice, <laughs> but maybe not very believable. <laughs> but I thought that his character kept it quite lighthearted throughout and you kind of, you warmed to him. So it kind of made it a nice a nice thing to read because he was a likable character yeah i agree that's a nice touch that he's worried about the point that david was saying about he knows that his wife his wife-to-be wouldn't mind him if he didn't have any money and that he was that he was she was basically his first thought i think that is a that is a sweet touch and that is quite believable um, i like that as do i that is it is a very sweet touch and it is a very sweet story um that i've spent the last uh, 10 minutes or so trying to convince you all of um that's that's also a great note for us to conclude this episode here so i'd just like to say my thanks to mary and david for joining us and of course to alex for his able narration and until this wee group of friends gets together again for another story from the friend to you cheerio thanks again for joining us for this episode of reading between the lines subscribe in your podcast app today so you don't miss our next story and check our previous episodes for more from the Friend Archives. We'd be delighted if you were to recommend this podcast to your friends. If you don't already get The People's Friend, 
Because you listen to Reading Between the Lines, you can now get your first 13 issues for just £8. And that special offer is available until the 31st of May, 2021. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And for more from The People's Friend, visit thepeoplesfriend.co.uk or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Haste you back. There's a dainty little journal that is read both far and near. It has had a host of rivals, still it stands without a peer. It is bright and entertaining from the first page to the end, and is known to its admirers as the dear old people's friend. A charming little journal is the friend. Of good things it is such a happy blend That to read it at your leisure Is a pleasure without measure The friend to friends in trouble recommend They won't be happy till they get the friend